following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Okay, I have so much I want to share with you, so much that I'm very excited about, um, so we need to get started here. Uh, we turn our attention today to Artisan's foundational value of justice. Now, as most of you know by now, particularly if you've been here for a while, we are thinking this year about what our next decade as a church will be like. And what we have said, thank you, Matt, what we have said is that whatever may come, what we we certainly ought to be doing is reaffirming our foundational values, the values that we believe God instilled in us, led us to when we planted Artisan Church 10 years ago. Awe, beauty, roots, community, and justice. Those five values have determined all kinds of different things. They, they gave us a push at our beginning. They've given us direction when we've had key decisions to make. They are the ones that we look to, uh, to to answer the question, who are we? And as we think about who will we be in our second decade as a church, this is where we're turning our attention once again. And so we're going through each of those five values, spending a few weeks on each one of them, between now and roughly Thanksgiving, uh, and so today we're starting with what is, we typically say is our fifth value, but it's the second one that we've looked at as we begin this, our next decade kind of thematic thread. And so I want to give you an overview of what we mean when we say justice. First of all, let me ask you to think for a second about what comes to your mind when you hear the word justice. Right? What are you thinking about right now? How many of you are thinking like something related to criminal justice? Right? Show of hands. All right, there's a few there, uh, you law and order types. Right. How many think about something related to what you might describe as social justice? Okay, a lot of hands there. Um, how many are thinking of the Justice League? <laughs> ah, there's one, two, thank you. 34, I see those hands. <laughs> how many of you think of my favorite type of justice, poetic justice? <laughs> like when somebody scares a clown, right? <laughs> poetic justice. Well, we're not talking about poetic justice. We're not talking about the Justice League. We're not really talking about criminal justice. And uh, although social justice would come close, we're not even just talking about that. What we mean when we say justice, and, and this is how I can try to distill it for you, is that the world is right. If justice is being done, the world is right by God's definition of what is right. And I think that most of us would agree that the world is not right. Certainly not entirely right. The, the, all the tragedy that was represented just in the prayer requests that we shared just today is enough to tell us that the world is not completely right. If you have looked at a single newspaper or news website in the past week, the images that you have seen they prove that the world is not right. So if justice is when the world is right, according to God's definition of what's right, that definition itself raises all kinds of questions, doesn't it? For example, how do we know what God's definition of right is? We probably can all agree that the picture of the Syrian boy that we saw this past week is not right in God's eyes. What about some other things we may disagree We have to be careful that we're not 
substituting our own definition of right and wrong for, for God's. And if we, even if we could agree that in these specific ways the world is not right in God's eyes, we're left with what I might call a theological problem, which is why? Why, if God has a, a specific vision for what is right in the world, why is the world not like that already? So with these questions swirling, I would like to pause for a brief prayer. I think we need this. I know I need this. Will you join me in praying? God, we long to see justice in the world, but we are overwhelmed by injustice in the world. What's more, we are distracted by endless political debates, by the infotainment of our media, and by our own comforts that we cling so tightly to. So now I pray that you would help me to speak clearly out of your word, that you would help us all to hear you clearly. Amen. So I'd like to begin by uh, showing you the summary statement that Artisan Church makes about this foundational value of justice. And uh, I... Uh, of course, have this memorized, as most of you do, um, but I did put it on the screen just in case. This is what we say about justice, Going, unpacking a little bit the idea of being right in God's definition of the, of the word right. We are captivated by the heart of God for, a hurting, for hurting people and a suffering creation, seeking to bring compassion to those needs and a just end to their underlying causes. Captivated by the heart of God for hurting people and a suffering creation, seeking to bring compassion to those needs and a just end to their underlying causes. Now, as you look at that statement, I want to draw your attention to two pairings that are present there. First, you see uh, hurting people and a suffering creation. I want to talk about that, that pairing for a little bit. And then you see the second one, compassion to the needs and a just end to their underlying causes. So let's think about that first pairing, hurting people and a suffering creation. When we think about hurting people, who are we talking about when we make this statement of our foundational value of justice? Are we talking about the poor? Certainly. That's not all we're talking about. We're thinking of people who are social outcasts, people who suffer from mental illness, people who are widows or orphans or prisoners. We're thinking of the sick. You don't have to look very far to see that there are people hurting in all kinds of different ways in our world today. And you have to think to yourself, this is not what God wants. This can't be right in God's eyes. And at the end of the day, not to make everybody's suffering equal, but all of us experience some form of suffering. We are all, at one time or another, maybe right now, one of the suffering people mentioned in this statement. But it's not just about people. It's also about the whole world. That's what that pairing indicates hurting people, and a suffering creation. Now, this is not just some modern hippie agenda, right? 
I'm mean, sure the pastor wearing flip-flops while he preaches wants to, wants to think about ecology. That's a surprise, right? <laughs> the scriptures speak so clearly about this that you, if you read them, I would recommend that, by the way, reading them. They speak so clearly about the fact that it's not just hurting people, that the world itself, the creation itself, is also suffering. Here, let me show you just a couple things. Um, You don't have to even turn to these in your Bible. I'm going to read them quickly. This is from the prophet Hosea, chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O people of Israel. For the Lord has an indictment against the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or loyalty and no knowledge of God in the land. Swearing, lying, and murder, and stealing and adultery break out. Bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns, and all who live in it languish. Together with the wild animals and the birds of the air, even the fish of the sea are perishing. You see evidence of that, don't you? Well, that was the Old Testament pastor. That doesn't count. Um, let's look at uh, Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 18 through 23. This is, uh, as, as is every sentence in the book of Romans, this is like soaked with theology and, and it's very complicated, but the message is contained in here is fairly clear. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. That's good news. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. So this passage articulates a tension that is at the heart of one of the big questions that we might have when we think about justice. Which is, if God is so powerful, how can it be that the world isn't right in his eyes? And the answer seems to be contained, or the answer that seems to be contained in the passage, is this. God's story is not finished yet. He says, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. We don't like waiting. We want everything to be corrected now. But the reality in the world is that God's story is not finished yet. Uh, if you will spare me, or if you'll, if you'll pardon me for just a second to put this in Tolkien-esque terminology, the great battles have been fought, the war has been won, but the king has yet to return for the scouring of the shire, right? If you're bored, now you have something to Google, (laughs) as if, as if there's anybody in the room who doesn't already know about the scouring of the the shire, who's like, yeah, I would like to know more about Tolkien right now, I'm going to Google that. You either know it or or you're like done with Tolkien, but trust me, it's a beautiful image. (laughs) You could actually Google it, you might like it. 
the scouring of the Shire. There's a, uh, it turns out there's a Wikipedia article about the scouring of the Shire, which, of course, there is. <laughs> oh, really, the Nerd Encyclopedia has a special article about Tolkien? Um, so, the end of the story hasn't happened yet. Now, there's a whole sub-school of theology that deals with what happens at the end. It's called eschatology. But I don't care if you ever hear that word again or know what it means or, or if you like that kind of thing. I don't care if you don't consider yourself a theologian. We all have to think about what we believe will happen at the end and also think about the consequences of that belief on our willingness to work for justice. Let me tell you what I mean. Because if you think that the end of the story looks like Jesus coming down on a cloud and whisking away, carrying up all the Christians into the sky, taking them off to heaven, just before he toasts the unbelievers and the entire rest of the planet like some Jesus-y death star, if that's your view of how things will end, and believe me, having been raised in a church where some people taught that, If that's your view of how things will end, Jesus whisking away the good people while the bad people burn, then guess what? You're probably not going to care very much about what happens to people right now, about what happens certainly to the planet right now, because God's just going to like erase everything and start over in a new place. And you can make what I would consider to be a very poor Scriptural argument that that is how, how things will end. There's a, there's a lot of people who believe that. That is not what I believe. That is not what I believe is taught in the scriptures. If you think, obviously I'm going to tell you now what I think, if you think that the end of the story, on the other hand, is something that looks like Jesus returning to his beloved creation and not wiping it out, but renewing it and rebuilding it and making all things good and new again, if that's what you think is the end of the story, well, then you might just be inspired to join him in that action, in that work that he is already doing, that's already taking place in the world. You might just be inspired to work like the Dickens (laughs) to try to bring about the reality of that kingdom of God that future reality, and and as we've said sometimes, sort of pulling it into the present and making it more real for us right now. So I don't care if you know what the word eschatology means. I don't care if you hate the the discipline of theology, if you think that's too complicated or for somebody in an ivory tower. The consequences of what you hold, which is a theological view whether you like it or not, they're real. The consequences matter. So you have to think about what you think the end of the story looks like. You have to search the scriptures to see evidence for one ending of the story or another because it will impact whether or not you decide to work for justice and if you do, how hard. And that brings us to the the second pairing. Seeking to bring compassion to those needs and a just end to their underlying causes. When we think about compassion, we're thinking about meeting immediate needs. Helping people, helping situations right now. Something you can do this minute to help this person. 
helping immediate needs is good. It is godly. Jesus himself did it. Jesus taught us that we should do it. We should never lose interest in compassion, in meeting people's needs right now. But we should also be careful that we don't become lulled into inaction, having done a little bit of compassionate work so that we can check something off in our personal I'm awesome notebook. Because that problem is going to come around again tomorrow to a different person, maybe to the same person, and it might not be tomorrow, it might be in about five minutes. Which is why we talk about bringing a just end to the underlying causes. This is what justice is about. Think of, if you will, a riverbank with a rushing river, and it's a a trail going along the bank, and there's a slippery spot. And people often slip in the mud and fall into the river and are carried away by the waters, and they drown. If you saw somebody slip into the river, you would, of course, make every effort to save that person. Throw them a life preserver, put a branch out, probably shouldn't dive in, lifeguards would tell you, but do something to help. That would be like compassion. And if you, if you saw somebody slip in the river and you start to get carried away, and you're just like, well, I was hiking, so I'm going to keep going now. That would be awful. Nobody would do that. I'm not saying don't do works of compassion, but what would be better would be to, after you have helped one person be saved from the waters, address the problem somehow. Like maybe build a a fence or a railing along that slippery riverbank so that people don't fall in anymore if they slip in the mud. Here's the problem with this. Compassion, in this case, will get your face on the evening news. You will go on Twitter. You will become a viral superhero. Artisan church attendee saves drowning woman. Right? That's how it would be played out in the news, of course. (laughs) Building the fence, nobody's going to put that on the news. Nobody wants to try to make a, a story out of that. It's uninteresting. It's not exciting. There's no, there's no movie version of building a fence. How many more lives could you save by building the fence than by, you know, twice a week on Tuesdays and Thursdays standing by the riverbank with a life preserver? Or, you know, on Saturdays going to the soup kitchen with your life preserver. I'm not saying it's bad to, to help people. I'm saying that there are underlying causes that need to be addressed, and that is the more important work. That is what justice is. So, yes, participate in tutoring programs in your, in, in your neighborhood school. Children need that kind of help. But maybe that need, they need that kind of help because they're in poverty. And if we were to do something about the fact that they, their families can't put food on the table and raise the children well at the same time, that might help, wouldn't it? Or maybe we could do something about the fact that, that uh, children of color are, are disciplined in classrooms more than white children are. You think that might set them back and put them on the path to needing tutoring? How do you fix that? What's the version of the fence on the riverbank for that? I don't actually know. But I know that there are bigger problems. In every case, you see somebody suffering 
You see a hurting person. You see evidence of the creation suffering. In every case, you can address it compassionately, and you should, but there's always an underlying cause. So the challenges that we face are, first of all, knowing how to strike the balance between compassion and justice. This can be confusing, and the challenge itself can be somewhat paralyzing, but we can't become paralyzed. It's not an option that's given to us. And then another challenge presents itself because we realize that at a certain point, working for justice in the world is going to require some engagement with public policy. And a lot of us don't like politics. Some of us uh, think that the government is inherently corrupt. Some of us are, are disillusioned by gridlock. Some of us think that it takes too long. Some of us think that, that we're superheroes and we'll just solve it ourselves. The private sector can take care of this, etc., etc., etc. I have no intention of getting political, but I do know at a certain point public policy matters. Remember uh, Pastor Simmons last week urging us to take a stand? If you didn't hear that sermon last week, I urge you to go listen to the podcast. What a powerful message. Part of taking a stand means that you are standing up to the rulers and authorities. Not just to spiritual things, but to what's actually in place in our cities, in our counties, in our states, in our country, in our world. Public policy actually has to be part of the solution. And again, I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I do know that I spent a, lot of time, a long time in my life thinking that... Um, that would be the wrong way to engage with the problems. But this is the world that we are given. This is part of, the, part of the problem sometimes. Addressing underlying causes is going to mean changing things politically sometimes. Sorry. For all of you who are inclined, as I am, toward libertarianism, it, it's not always going to work. Okay. Two pairings. Hurting people is suffering creation compassion and justice. But I have to confess now that I tricked you a little bit. Because I suspect that the most important phrase in the whole thing is the one that I have neglected to mention thus far this morning. The one that I skipped over and went to these two pairings because um, I wanted to trick you. <laughs> How does that value statement start? We are captivated by the heart of God. Can you say that with me? We are captivated by the heart of God. One more time. We are captivated by the heart of God. No, we're not. Not, not, not enough anyway. Maybe uh, we ought to examine our motives as well. Why is it, if you're a person who's inclined to care about justice, why? What's your reason? Is it because you have certain political commitments and people on the right and left have certain political commitments that would lead them toward what they would describe as justice, bringing about what God wants in the world, the world being right by God's definition? Is it because of social pressure? Is it because your friends think justice is cool, something that you should do? Is it from your family or your coworkers or your pastor or your church leaders? Is it because you feel guilty that you have to do something? There are a whole host of reasons why we might be inclined toward justice. 
But the real reason we do it is that we are captivated by the heart of God. And if we are not captivated by the heart of God, we will probably find that our passion is limited, that our interest begins to wane, most importantly, that our resolve begins to weaken, and we won't be able to sustain our work for justice. So very quickly, how can we become captivated by the heart of God if we're not already? Well, many of you could guess what I'm about to say right now. If you want to know what God is like, where do you look first? Jesus. Jesus is what God has to say. (laughs) To quote one of my favorite pastors. If you want to be captivated by the heart of God, look at the heart of Jesus as evidence in the scriptures. And you could look at the very beginning of his ministry, when he comes out of the wilderness having been tempted by the devil, and he, he, he goes to the, the synagogue and picks up the scroll of Isaiah and reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he sits down and he says, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus inaugurates his ministry this way. You could look to the very end, not even the end of his ministry, but what he describes as the very end of the world, as we know it, on the day of judgment. Yeah, yes, R.E.M., right. The day of judgment when he separates the sheep and the goats. And do you remember what the determining factor is for who gets to enter into to glory and who doesn't? Right? It's whether you wore the WWJD bracelet when you were in high school. It's whether you prayed the sinner's prayer. It's whether you got saved. No, it's none of those things. Not according to Jesus in Matthew 25, 31 and following. Write it down and read it later. If we want to be captivated by the heart of God, we could follow Jesus' example by building relationships with people whom have been uh, cast out and discarded by the rest of the world, by the, uh, the political system, by the religious entities of the day. Who are the people who are not in this room because if they came in here, we would look at them funny? Who are the people who are not in this room because they went to some church their whole life and they were told how disgusting they were? And why on earth would they ever want to go back into a place where they were going to hear that again? Who are the people who are not in this room because they don't look like us, they don't have quite as much money as we do, they don't have the advantages that we have, and it would just kind of be awkward? Those are the people that Jesus sought out and ministered to, and we have to do it. And of course, to become captivated by the heart of God, you should look to the rest of Scripture as well. Remember our thematic thread from last year, shaped by the words of Scripture. The Word of God, capital W, is Jesus. The words of Scripture express God's heart as well. And the Bible is so soaked with with justice that it's really, uh, and you're like, no kidding, it's really hard to preach a a succinct sermon about justice uh, to give you an overview of what Scripture has to say about it. I can't do it. I'm out of time five minutes ago and I have a few more things to say. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) You could easily spend the rest of the year in your own private scripture reading, which, by the way, I would recommend that you do, going through all the occurrences of the word justice in the Bible. There's a lot of them. 
Get a concordance. Use an internet web app or something. It's not hard. Find them. Read each verse in context. You could spend the rest of the year doing that every day. And you would run, you would run out of year before you ran out of scripture to think about justice. If you wanted something a little bit more uh, self-contained, you could go to our website, artisanchurch.com, slash about, or click the About Us button, and you'd see under our justice value statement a handful of scripture references, uh, which um, I think used to be clickable, but some Bible website changed their API, and I don't think it works anymore. Um, note to self, remind Cranfield to fix that later. Um, <laughs> but you can still go find the Bible verses, and, and you would find all kinds of things. One of the things that you would find, which is really hard to hear, but is absolutely the message of Scripture, is that God wants justice much more than he wants worship, much more than he wants sacrifice, much more than he wants spiritual discipline, much more than he wants fasting. God wants justice. And he says things like, I hate your sacrifices. He says things like, you lift your hands to me in prayer and I hide my eyes because you're not doing justice. We don't want to hear that. We don't want to wait. (laughs) We want God to fix everything now. Uh, But we also don't want to work for it ourselves. We'd rather, you know... Maybe if I just fast for the poor people in Syria. Yes, fast. Do it. I encourage you to do it. But the biblical message is that that is not actually the first thing that God wants. And yet here we are this morning in a worship service, worshiping in song, praying, engaging in the spiritual discipline of reading scripture and hearing it taught. We're about to take communion together, which is our version of the sacrificial system, which is decried by so many of the prophets. Here we are. Are we captivated by the heart of God or not? I have to stop now. (laughs) You'll notice that there isn't a bow on this sermon. We have a lot of work to do together. I am encouraged by how well we're doing with justice now as compared to how well we were doing with justice five or six years ago. But we have a long way to go together as a community. And that is one of the reasons why we are reaffirming our foundational values as we think about our next decade together because in some cases we have lots of work to do. Let's pray. God, we are abashed, we are convicted, we are humiliated and embarrassed by our own failings, by our lack of action, by our sometimes unwillingness to engage enough to do anything, to bring about your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, to bring about the justice that you demand that you want to see. We are confused and we don't know where to go. We ask for your guidance that we would not only be convicted by your spirit, but we would be guided by your spirit, that we would be emboldened by your spirit, that we'd be empowered by your spirit to do the work that you've called us to do. 
we will continue to worship and pray and fast, trusting and resolving that that won't be all that we, that we do. We offer ourselves to you now in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, we have a couple more songs to sing together this morning, and I'd like to invite each of you uh, to come and take the sacrament of communion. Um, Artisan's communion table is an open table. All who seek to follow Jesus in this place on this day are invited to come and receive this beautiful means of God's grace, this beautiful sacrament of sustenance. You can tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in the wine or the juice, whatever would be more appropriate for you and for your family. Uh, If you are not a follower of Jesus, if you would say that right now you're still thinking through this and observing, it's entirely okay not to participate in this time. You can think and pray and meditate. Just observe. Um, If you'd like to receive prayer, that will happen right up here under the cross. Um, My encouragement, as always, is is for each of you to respond however the Spirit may be leading you in this moment right now. Our table is open. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.